All right, well, good evening. For those of you who didn't fake a Bible study and dared to stay in this evening, appreciate that very much. Um, why don't we just go to the Lord in prayer, feel compelled to do that this evening, with all that's going on in Texas and even what's going on right above us right now and the potential tornado warnings to come. So why don't we just pray for safety and thank the Lord uh, for His good provision for us today, okay? Father, uh, this night our hearts certainly are saddened by the incredible news that is coming from a small community outside of San Antonio. We know that regardless of the motives of this shooting, this church, uh, Lord, that uh, it is true that Worse and worse the times will be for us. But we rejoice that you've given us such liberty and such freedom, and you've given us such ability to worship. And we, we thank you, O sovereign ruler of, this, of all the universe. And we submit to your will and to your authority in our life. Father, our hearts go out to those family members who have lost, uh, think of even the pastor who lost his 14-year-old daughter. Lord, would your name be glorified through this horrific event. Father, for the, for the system that you control right above us, the weather, Lord, would you see fit this evening to smile down upon us and keep us safe. And allow us to continue to worship undistracted. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Certainly thankful for all of you who serve. And we're thankful for even those who uh, sit among us and serve. We don't announce it too often, but the, the safety team. We have a security team here. And uh, Mr. Ralph Doles, many of you know that name. He really head up, head up that charge. He led that charge. And put us in a, in a great, uh, with a great policy manual to, to be able to uh, hopefully never have to use it. But it's here, and, uh, and so we just take comfort uh, that all that we can do, we're trying to do, and the rest is in the Lord's hands, isn't it? All right. Take your Bibles and turn to Micah chapter 5 this evening as we continue a new, well, as we start a new study that pastor has asked us as pastors to Begin, you may have read it in the bulletin, uh, really a, a series leading up to Christmas on the Incarnation. And today we're going to be talking about the unexpected and unaccepted announcement of Jesus Christ, His Incarnation. And so we'll look at Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. And as you turn there, I'd like to ask you this question. Have you ever heard of a man named George Demestral? My... Intuition is probably not. Um, I like to choose these random people to make myself seem smarter, only because I read it myself. I didn't really know this person. He was a Swiss engineer. He was born uh, at the, the turn of the 20th century. And uh, many of you can identify him with him. He was, while he was hunting in the Alps, we can't probably identify with in the Alps part, uh, but those of you who are eagerly awaiting deer season, uh, while he was hunting with his dog in the Alps, he became very cu curious about these burrs that were sticking to his dog and sticking, consequently, to his pants as he was walking through the woods, and as many hunters do, scaring away all the wildlife around them. Um, and so, as an engineer and scientist, he, he got home, and his curiosity really uh, became intense. And so, what does anyone who's curious do? Well, they bring out their microscope. You know, the handy-dandy microscope that you have, you know, up in the kitchen shelf somewhere. And so he, he took that out and, and he, he put this, this burr, much like a, uh, probably a miniature monkey ball. You guys know what monkey balls are? That's what we call them as kids anyway. Those, those annoying things that, that you get pelted at, you know, by your friends and enemies and stick to your hair and, and hurt when you, you know, get face slammed into the grass and all that stuff. I had a rough childhood, okay? Um, and so he, he looked at these birds underneath the, 
microscope and he saw these, what would he'd later describe as hooks and loops. Well, he saw the hook part and then he figured out that they were, they were hooking to natural loops, whether it would be in the dog's fur or in the fabric of his pants. And maybe you kind of see where we're going with what he uh, uh, initial, uh, eventually invented, but he took this invention to uh, the city uh, Lyon, if I said that right, outside of, uh, inside of France. It was the center, it was the textile center of France. And, uh, and uh, he, went it, he went to textile, textile to textile uh, shop and, and tried to kind of uh, sell them on this hooks and loops idea that he originally saw uh, hunting with his dog in the Alps. And he was rejected, he was ridiculed, and for the next 10 years he looked, he, he, he worked on these hooks and loops. And finally he secured some patents, he, he got just the right kind of materials to, to kind of start really fabricating these hooks and root loops, but he really had a hard time doing it on a mass scale, blah, blah, blah. The point is, is that he invented something that people rejected, that laughed at him, that kind of tossed him out. Later, an international, multi-billion dollar company called Velcro would come into the scene. And guess whose invention Velcro is from? Well, it's from good old George. So it really wasn't even until his death that this Common everyday thing that we take advantage of, that whether we're, we're doing safe, sticky things on the wall, or whether my two-year-old can do her own shoes because of the assortment of Velcro on textiles now, or even in the automotive or uh, aerospace industry. In fact, Lexus did this funny prank, I think it was last year or the year before, about making a Velcro seat. It was like this immersive, you know, connectivity, be, be so connected with your Lexus. It was a joke, but it was, you know, it was about Velcro. And, uh, and there's others like Demestral in this kind of lonely, forgotten, ridiculed, maybe too soon, too premature of an investment or uh, invention, I should say. Men like Thomas Edison, who was ridiculed for most of his life for most of his inventions, right? And even British Parliament stated this officially about Edison's light bulb. He says, they said, it is, the unworthy, it is unworthy of the attention of practical or scientific men. The light bulb. Well, it's certainly worthy of our attention today, isn't it? Or how about the Wright brothers and their airplane that was said, it's an interesting scientific toy but, there, but, that, but that are of no military value, said by an Allied commander during World War I. And we know how pivotal they were during World War II, just a few years later. Throughout history, there's been a resistance to accepting the announcement of something great. And really, it comes down to this dismissal of an unwillingness to listen. Yes, this, this ignorance, certainly. But I think it, it really comes down to the basic human reality, the nature that, that our life is the best. We've got all that we need. We're so content in, in one sense. In another sense, we're not content, and, and, and we always want more and more and more. But in another sense, we, we can't see our life bettered, any better than it already is. That's something called pride. And so... They rejected the better because they had a false sense of what was best. Right? Don't we have a false sense of what is best often in our life? So as November begins, pastors asked us to, to really look at the incarnation of Jesus Christ. So hence we turn to Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. But I want to pause for a moment and just consider that this is November. Right? It is not too soon to be considering the incarnation in our culture, is it? Because if you've gone to Home Depot, like I frequent or Lowe's, you have noticed that, that the, the blow-up spider scary things, right, started in like July at those stores, right? And, and they totally forgot about Thanksgiving. In September, they switched their spidery, scary blow-up things to inflatable Santa Clauses and, and snowmen. 
as if we really need an inflatable snowman around here. Right? We went from pumpkin spice to frosted mint behind the barista counter. Right? And so our culture is inundated with how they're defining Christmas, and it's happening sooner and sooner and sooner in our culture, certainly no doubt driven by the retail reality. Right? If they're going to make money, they're going to put it on the shelves. And we're going to buy a Santa Claus in July. That's on us. Right? But this isn't, this isn't something that has just happened now in the 21st century. It's not even something that happened in the first century. In terms of Micah, it's something that's been missed since the 7th century B.C. So for over 27 centuries, humanity has a chance, has had a chance to really hear and consider this announcement of Jesus Christ. A promise that was fulfilled to the T, a gift that has been given to all, and unfortunately missed by way too many. And so let's look at Micah chapter 5 and this unexpected and unaccepted announcement of Jesus Christ. We see in verse 2, chapter 5 of Micah, but as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His going forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. And so this announcement was unexpected. It was unaccepted. And we're going to look at three simple reasons, I think, why it was unexpected. It was unaccepted by far too many. There's an intrinsic paradox in Micah's announcement. So we're going to look at the paradox. There's a a not-too-subtle plan in Micah's announcement, and so we're going to look at the plan. And there is the reality of a person in Micah's announcement. So a paradox, a plan, and a person. Let's look at the paradox of Micah's announcement of our Christ. It really helps us to see this paradox by examining the first word, but, in, in chapter 5, verse 2. Micah says, but. So there's, there's something that he's obviously contrasting. And so what is he contrasting? Well, it's really on the heels of judgment. And if you read Micah, you'll notice a pattern with Micah. Micah is a paradoxical kind of guy. He's, he's kind of bipolar, like many of the prophets were. He had all kinds of judgment to announce. And along with judgment, Micah had a whole lot of hope. And so there's this, there's this, there's this paradox that Micah pre presents in his announcement of the coming king. And it is, first of all, that there is a judgment for Israel and, and really for all of, of humanity to consider. It's really reflected here in verse 1 of Micah chapter 5. Now muster yourselves in troops daughter of troops. This is just real uh, strong language that, that there is not peace. There is, there, is, there, is, there is warfare. And we'll consider some of what Micah is talking about here in a little bit. They, those who are attacking Jerusalem, really, this is Jerusalem's in view, they have laid siege against us. With a rod, they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. So what's the nature of this judgment? Well, the, 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 the epicenter of Israel, the capital, the most important city, right? It's like Washington, D.C., Jerusalem, is being essentially sieged, and it succumbs to its enemy. And even the ruler, the king, is captured and humiliated and tortured. It's... Uh, is this certainly, we, there's an Assyrian captivity that is coming, there's a Babylonian captivity, this, 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 kind, of, this, this kind of lines up with the Babylonian captivity, the, the, that, that Nebuchadnezzar, that they, that they laid waste, that they sieged Israel. Hold your, by, hold your uh, finger in Micah and turn to 2 Kings chapter 25. We'll see what Nebuchadnezzar did, that he did capture 
Zedekiah and tortured him. 2 Kings chapter 25, and look with me in verse 1. This is, this is most, this, this certainly can be what Micah is referring to here that will happen in the future, a few hundred years from now. Now in the ninth year of his reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came, and he and all his army against Jerusalem enters the siege, right? Camped against it, built a siege wall all around it. So the city was under siege until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. One on the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city, right? That's kind of the reality of a siege, right? If, if, if it's so fortified, you weaken them by cutting off all, you starve them. That there was no food for the people of the land. Then the city was broken into, and all the men of war fled by night by the way of gate between the two walls besides the king's garden. Those Chaldeans were all around the city, and they went by the way of Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him to the king of Babylon. So they took Zedekiah, and they brought him to Nebuchadnezzar. And, he, and the king said, okay, it's a zit for you. Verse 7, they slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. Then they put out the eyes of Zedekiah. They struck him. They struck his face and bound him with bronze fetters and brought him to Babylon. So certainly the context here is of, of great judgment to come. And what was the reason for this judgment? There's always a reason, right? I mean, God has a good reason that he allowed his people's capital city, to, to, to lay waste, for the king to be held up and to be mocked and to be tortured and humiliated as a country. What was that reason? Turn back to Micah, but go to chapter 1. Go to chapter 1, and, and let's look at verse number 3. So Micah chapter 1, verse 3, he says, For behold, the Lord is coming forth from his place. So he's being moved for some reason. What's that reason? He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. That is the, the political, the most important places like Jerusalem. The mountains will melt under him and the valleys will be split. So this is pretty devastating. Like wax before the fire, like water poured down a steep place. In other words, the erosion that happens, it's it washed. All this is for the rebellion of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. So the reason is that his people are sinning, right? Which is no surprise if we know Israel's history. What kind of, uh, what's the nature of this sin? What is this rebellion of Jacob? What is, is it not Samaria? So now he's pinpointed it out to Samaria, right? Which is far from Jerusalem. He says, what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? For I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the open country, planting places for a vineyard. So what was once a city is now going to be just a field, worthless. I will pour her stones down into the valley, and I will lay bare her foundations. Why? Look at verse 7. All of her idols will be smashed. So there's great idolatry. All of her earnings will be burned. There's great materialism, and, it, and it's coupled with this idolatry, and it's coupled with something awful. This materialism will be burned with fire, and all of her images I will make desolate, for she collected them, that is, the earnings, from a harlot's earnings, and to the earnings of a harlot they will return. Because of this, I must lament and wail. I must go barefoot and naked. I must make a lament like the jackals, in a morning like the ostriches. What a, what a picture of God's morning for his people. He's sticking his head as low as an ostrich can. <laughs> for her wound is incurable, for it has come to Judah. It has reached the gate of my people, even to Jerusalem. So this was a sin epidemic that went far beyond the reality of Samaria. It spread like cancer throughout the entire nation. And while we don't live in a theocratic age by any means, you know that here, we can pause for a second and we can consider maybe a New Testament parallel. 
Well, Jesus says a little leaven leavens the whole what? And so we even see that as a reality going back all the way to God's people in Israel, don't we? We see it time and time again. And so it is worth our time to consider tonight that we ought to be careful, little eyes, what you see, right? I mean, we're going to put it in the two-year-old level, right? That's where we're at. It's not just a commercial, right? It's not, it's not just a show, right? So we've got to be careful not to tolerate these things in our own lives. A little sin in our lives is never little, and it is always dangerous. It is never little, and it is always dangerous. We have good friends, don't we? We have family here that we have, we have seen go off into just a little sin. And now no longer are even in our fellowship. And so a little sin in, is never little, and it's always dangerous. That's a lesson we certainly can learn as we see this paradox in judgment. But there's also this salvation. Look at verse 2. But as for you, Bethlehem. Right? Micah chapter 5, verse 2. It's odd that the entire focus of Micah's judgment is on the center of the, the, the nation, right? It's Jerusalem. And in the midst of this warning... He kind of like throws them aside, the audience of Jerusalem. He throws them aside. And he, he goes to this minuscule little, out-of-the-way, insignificant place called Bethlehem. And he says, but for you, Bethlehem, he calls them out. Then, to just show how insignificant Bethlehem really was, he says Ephrathah. Right? So in other words, there's, 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 different, there's different Bethlehems. You know, I thought there was a Greenville. I went to school in Greenville, South Carolina. I thought there was a Greenville in every 50 states. I looked it up today. It's not true. <laughs> I was so, like, crushed. Right? But, just for fun, it's kind of like Springfield. How many of you would vote that Springfield is in all 50 states? Well, it's an old wives' tale. It's not even true. It's only 34. Right? I know, I spent the time this morning instead of studying. No, I'm joking. I just let the internet tell me. Hopefully it was a good source. The real champion. Are you ready for this? Can anybody guess? We don't have time. There's like too many. All right, put in your guess. Put it in your mind. What's the real champion? What, what state has the high, what city has the highest, you know, frequency of states that it's in? Washington. Here we're ready. We have, we have a school named this. Ready? Because there's probably one. There's, there's at least a river in every state. It's Riverside. How about that? There's a Riverside. Unless you live in Alaska, Hawaii, Louisiana, or Oklahoma, there's at least one Riverside in your state. At least one. That's kind of like Bethlehem. It's so out of the way. You know, we don't, we don't have to refer to New York, New York City, New York State. We know, right? Most of the time when we're talking about New York, we're talking about the city, not even the state. No one even knows that the rest of the state exists, right? That's not Bethlehem, right? That's not Bethlehem. I know you're from I, this beautiful state. It's really, they missed out. We, we went there last year to vacation a little bit. We loved it, right? But it's, it, it's there's, there's another Bethlehem, Zebulun. But this is Bethlehem Ephrata. So, so it's, just, it's just a little subtle but interesting way to, to say, this is Bethlehem in this region, Ephrata in Judah, And so it's a small, little, too little to be among the clans of Judah. You know, in in Joshua's naming, in in his census of the land, Bethlehem never came up. That's the point. Bethlehem was so insignificant. Matthew chapter 26, uh, excuse me, chapter 2, you don't have to turn there, where this is referenced, verse 6, it says, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. Why? Because there's, there's a great person that this announcement's alluding to, and, and he's going to come from Bethlehem. Just like, by the way, King David. And even though you would think, even though the, you know, you know like we have, what is it? Uh, oh, I'm drawing a blank. The, uh, Gar- is it Garfield? No. Whose house do we have right over here? Is it Garfield? Yeah. See what you people do to me? You make me uh, second guess myself. Right? What do we, we're the home of Garfield, right? Bethlehem, they, 
apparently it just was no big deal. And no one really thought about Bethlehem. And, and no one really considers mentor when, you know, when you go out. What do you say? I'm from Cleveland. Right? Even though we're the home of Garfield. That no one cares. <laughs> I was like, who? He was a president? What a blessing. Right? No, we're from Cleveland. Right? So, so Bethlehem, insignificant. Insignificant even in Israel's mind. And, you know, for most people, Christ is a babe in a major when they think of Bethlehem, don't they? They think of this sweet little baby, this inconsequential story, and their life really is not affected at all, is it, by who this announcement is about. They don't really consider all that is real about his death, which brings to us to the, the, the consequence of his absolute rule in your life, doesn't it? And so, so many, just like Israel, totally let this announcement just go by the way. Oh, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Insignificant, small, little place. You know, Paul says that about those who believe in Jesus Christ, doesn't he? Consider 1 Corinthians chapter 1 when he says, right? God chose the foolish things to confound the wise, didn't he? That's, that's, that's just how God operates, isn't it? It's a beautiful thing. He chose someone like me to stand up here and preach the word of God. Who? Steve Sindelar? Really? Doesn't matter. It's God's word. Bethlehem? Really? Doesn't matter. It's God's word. And God has something that he's going to accomplish regardless of how the world deems it just a insignificant little thing. There are several examples of people that I think really, as we consider Bethlehem, missed this announcement in a tragic way. When you think about Bethlehem, you kind of, you think about, uh, you think about maybe the innkeeper, don't you? It's kind of like the first guy on the scene, right? Knock on the door. What? What does he say? No room. No room. He was a busy guy. You know why he was so busy? You know why there was so, regardless of what kind of an inn it was, we don't really know. I mean, that, that could mean a whole lot of different things. But all we do know is that there was no room. And they were not barbaric people. There was a lady in front of him about to give birth. You ever considered that? Forget the baby in the manger part. There was a pregnant lady giving birth. And what does he say? I mean, those of you who have been there, you would not just close the door and say, sorry, no room. But he was just too busy. He was too full. There was the census going on, wasn't there? And the census made you go to the place where you were born. And what was the birthplace of Bethlehem? It was David's birthplace. So the whole lineage of David is, is here. It's busy. There's probably, there probably is no room. That's probably true. But don't you find it just so ironic that the king of kings that comes from their very line is, is just kind of shoved off to the side in a manger because they're all too busy worrying about the census, worrying about a place to stay, even when there's a lady who's in the process of giving birth. Everyone was too busy. Boy, doesn't that strike a chord in our culture today with the announcement of Jesus Christ? I don't know about you. Christmas is a really busy time. And you know what? It's really busy at Grace Church of Mentor. We have parties. We have a program. And we do all these things for good reasons. And I'm not suggesting that we stop doing them this evening. But all these extra things, they require someone to do a lot of work. 
So go give Laura Hart a big hug and Courtney Coiro and all the others who are memorizing lines and pray for them and pray for yourself that we will not be too busy for our Christ. You know, there's nothing special about December 25th. It's just a chosen time. It probably wasn't even during that it probably wasn't even during that time that Christ was born, most theologians would say. But it's the time, nonetheless, that we celebrate. But the point is, we don't need a busy time and retail shops to tell us to, it's time to start focusing on Christ. Because they're not even telling us how to focus on Christ the right way, are they? They're just packing their lives with so much busyness because they don't want the person of this announcement. The innkeeper was too busy. You know who else was? If the innkeeper was too busy, you know who else missed the first Christmas in Bethlehem? Missed the point? Another key player. Herod. Right? If the innkeeper was too busy, Herod was too scared. Chapter 2 of Matthew says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the day of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, verse 2, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw a star in the east and have come to worship him. Then Herod the king heard this, and the text says, He was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Well, that, that is quite an understatement for someone who laid edict to slaughtering all the, all the children in Bethlehem, isn't it? He was more than just troubled, wasn't he? He was scared out of his mind. Why? He was given that position to rule over the Jews. He wasn't even a Jew himself. And he was given that position by the Roman occupation, and he went around calling himself, his title via himself, was king of the Jews. He wanted to be ruler. And he didn't want anybody to challenge his authority. One author said of his fear, his paranoia was legendary. He was afraid of one of his two eldest sons, would, uh, excuse me, he was afraid one of his two eldest sons might take his throne. So he murdered them both. His entire life was one of plotting and execution. Five days before his death, he executed his eldest son for plotting against his throne. In one of the final acts of his life, he had the most distinguished citizens of Jerusalem put in prison and commanded that they be slaughtered the moment he died. Why? The people will not weep when I die, he said, and I want them weeping even if they weep over someone else. So even at his death, there was a great slaughter. So he was strick, stricken with fear. He was afraid to let Jesus Christ rule and be king. And so he missed the announcement. And there's one more that I think is interesting for us to consider as we're in Matthew chapter 2. I know I didn't have you turn there, um, but just as we think about Bethlehem in that scene... In verse 4, it continues, and it says, he gath, uh, Gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes, this is Herod, gathering them get together all the religious leaders of the day, all the theologians. Right? And he said, where was the Messiah to be born? Where was this king going to be born? Where was this competition going to, where, where, where is he going to be? And what do they say? They say, to him in Bethlehem of Judea. And they quote Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. So they knew the reality of their king. Their king. The Messiah. And yet, they totally missed who their, what the announcement was for. They totally missed the whole point of the announcement what a paradox. What a tragic paradox. These religious leaders, too self-righteous, too, too proud, too self-abled to have any room 
for Jesus Christ to rule their life. So many parallels with our culture today. So many parallels even with the own fight that we have in our own life, isn't it? With our own struggles. Too busy for Jesus Christ. Too scared to let Jesus Christ rule in our life. Look too good in the spiritual mirror to let Jesus Christ really, right? Get down into the nitty-gritty of your life. The announcement. It's a little town in Bethlehem, but a whole lot of meeting, isn't there? And so we see not only the paradox, but the plan of the announcement. The plan. We see, first of all, that there's a purpose. Look at verse 2. Too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me. There's the purpose. Right? The purpose of the plan was for God. Bethlehem was the town of David. The Davidic covenant would be secured because Jesus Christ, the Messiah, would come from the same town. And David was a man after God's own heart, wasn't he? Right? He accomplished God's purposes. David said of himself that he was humble in Psalm 62. He said he, he revered God in Psalm 18. He respected God in Psalm 31. He trusted God, God in Psalm 27. He loved God in Psalm 18. He devoted himself to God in Psalm 4. He praised God in Psalm 9. He was faithful in Psalm 23. He was obedient in Psalm 19, 119. And when David wasn't obedient, he was incredibly repentant, like in Psalm 25 or Psalm 51. But there's something greater, isn't there, than David coming out of Bethlehem to accomplish God's purposes. Hold your fingers in Micah and turn to Colossians chapter 1. What is God's purpose? What is God's purpose? What is this for me? What is this plan that God has? Well, ultimately, it's, it's not to bring riches. It's not to bring national freedom. All too often, that's what Israel looked for, wasn't it? It's not to, to liberate. It's not to remove pain and hunger. Paul puts it this way in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 20. He says, and through him, that is Christ, to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say whether things on earth or things in heaven, and, through, and, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile, though you were separated from God, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. My friend, that is God's purposes for this announcement. It is to let Jesus Christ rule and reign in your heart. And it is to let Jesus Christ, through his death, make peace between you and God. Right? I think we get that. We get that. That was his purpose. But think, think with me here. This is, this is Micah and this is, this is Israel, right, as the audience. And, and one of the things that really pops up into my mind is... is, is as we consider these things, and the ultimate purpose of Christ is, is a scene shortly before Christ's crucifixion, the triumphal entry, right? And Christ is, is, is coming in, and what are they singing? What are they shouting? Hosanna, Hosanna, what does that mean? Save us now, right? I mean, the people were confessing that they needed a Savior, but my friends, they did not need God's plan. Do you get that? They wanted a Savior. But they wanted a Savior from the oppressive Romans. They wanted a Savior from being poverty-stricken. They wanted a Savior of having a national identity. But they did not want a Savior that would give them peace with God. That was their problem. 
They rejected God's plan. They rejected God's purpose. And in so doing, they rejected God's person. So too often do people cry out for salvation. They may not use those terms in our society, but they cry out, don't they? And yet they do not want, nor do they have any room for God's purpose, God's plan, God's person of this announcement. So another reality of God's plan in this announcement is, is not only is there a purpose in it, will go forth for me, but here is God's power in it, to be ruler in Israel. This, for your own uh, benefit, you could cross-reference later Micah chapter 3, verses 9 through 12. Micah really enumerates just how crooked the prophets and the priests were, that they really wouldn't do any kind of spiritual service without getting bribed. That's what Micah essentially says. Just how crooked the uh, Israelites' rulers were at this time. Yet God brings on to the scene the shepherd ruler that will ultimately have all authority and power. If we were to consider, not for time's sake, we won't tonight, but, but moving on from verse 2 in Micah chapter 5, if we were to go to verse 3, we would see that this ruler will eventually reunite Israel. It will be devastated, it will be separated, it will be demolished, and this ruler of this announcement will eventually reunite Israel. It will be a leader for his people in verse 4. It will secure peace, verses 5 and 6 of Micah chapter 5. And under this ruler, there will, people will flourish in verses 7 and 8. And following up to verses 15, this ruler will execute judgment on all those who do not obey. So Micah uh, now outlines what this ruler is going to do. But my friends, this announcement is about a ruler who has already come and a ruler who reigns now. We're not part of a theocratic uh, nation or an identity. But we certainly, certainly have the responsibility to let Jesus Christ rule and reign in our heart right now. Well, that sounds real nice, doesn't it? How does that work? Right? How does that work? How does Christ rule and reign in our heart right now? Please, hold your, uh, your, your finger in Micah and go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, a well-known passage. But I was trying to think through, okay, practically, how do I let Jesus Christ rule and reign in my heart right now? Right? If he's, if he's going to have ultimate authority one day, and if this announcement is real and true, and it's unfolding the plan of God about this ruler then everything that is happening is because of the rule and reign of Jesus Christ, even right now. And so what does that mean for me in my heart? 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and look with me in verse 7. Chapter 12, in verse 7, this is a well-known passage, right? Paul says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh. Flesh. He compares it to a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. So Paul is struggling with something. In verse 8, concerning this, I implore the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for the power for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, Paul says, therefore I would rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me so that Jesus Christ might display his rulership and his reigning ability in my life right now, even through the things that I don't like, even through these quote-unquote weaknesses in my life, even through the lack in my life, I will submit to the rule and reign of Jesus Christ now. And so he says, therefore I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. I mean, for people in Texas right now, right? For those who believe, my goodness, 
How do we let Christ rule and reign in our hearts? We get to this point. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Does Christ rule and reign in your life? Or are you too strong for him to do that tonight? So the paradox, the plan, and very briefly, and I'll let you go, hopefully early, because I always go late, the person, the person of this announcement. Continue on with me in Micah. It says, his going forth are from long ago, from days of eternity. You know, this is beautiful. In fact, pastor set us up quite nicely for this this morning. I don't know if you remember, recall, pastor was, uh, oh, it was about the illustration of the, uh, the teacher, and, and she was going to give $10, right, to, to any, any student that could name a promise uh, that wasn't already in Christ, right? And then pastor... Uh, Beautifully went through that, and, and then he, he made this comment. He said something about the reality that there is one difference, or there, is, there was one distinction between us and the promises that are in Christ. And, 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 he, and he said, we were created. We did not always exist like Jesus Christ, though we will live forever somewhere. We did not always live in eternity past. Well, here the announcement defines who is going to rule and reign and provide this salvation from this little town in Bethlehem. And that is the one whose goings forth are from long ago. And some theologians want to point back to, oh, well, this is really to the, to the Davidic covenant. It really kind of highlights that. But it is far from that. From The days of eternity. We could say from eternity past, this person has been coming and marching throughout the timeline of history, ruling and reigning. And it is a beautiful thing. Because this person is not like you and me. It is a beautiful thing because even in Micah, we have this this fresh sense of our Christ. It is a beautiful thing because as we read the Old Testament, we don't have to be ashamed to see Christ there. In fact, we can be pleasantly surprised. Often, there's this, well, there is this term in the Old Testament, this, this Christophany, this pre-incarnate form of Jesus Christ. It's called the angel of the Lord. And he appears, Christ appears to Hagar in the wilderness in Genesis 16. He appears to Abraham and Isaac, right? As Abraham's about to do it, he says, no, and who is that? It's not, it's not God from heaven. It is the angel of the Lord right there. It's Christ. Appears to Jacob several times. Appears at the burning bush, the pillar of cloud by fire. They uh, by fire by night and cloud by day. It appears to Balaam and his donkey. It appears to Joshua. Right? I love that. Joshua chapter 5, right? Where, where the angel of the Lord is, is standing over there. And Joshua's, Joshua says, are you, essentially, are you going to kill me or are you going to help me? And what does the angel of the Lord say? What does Christ say? He ignores him. Right? He says, he says neither. Right? He says, I'm commanding the hosts, right, for you. And what does Joshua do? Okay. What does he do? He takes off his sandals, right? You remember that? And what does he do? He worships, right? Fast forward to Revelation. What happens when John decides to start worshiping an angel? What does that angel do? It slaps John, right? Slaps right on the back and says, get up, John! Don't worship me. There's only one that can be worshipped. Right? It's a beautiful thing that we can see Jesus Christ marching through history. That, he has, that this announcement, though it, though it comes far after some of these events, 
He is ruling and he is reigning. And there's nothing different between the, the, the eternity past to now to when Jesus Christ will rule and reign for a thousand years and then after that. He is on the throne. And he is ruler of this day as well as the day to come. Some of the beautiful things, beautiful realities of, 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 of this of wedding this with, with, with New Testament theology is, is that Christ's preexistence, the fact that he was never created, that he always was, so lines up with what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, that we were chosen before the world even began in Jesus Christ. Revelation and Isaiah and all over the place, he is the first and the last, he's the Alpha and he is the Omega. And so there's this announcement from Micah tonight. It's simple, but it is profound. There is a paradox of judgment and of salvation. There is a plan that points to his absolute rulership and reign in our lives even right now. And it is all based in a person that has existed Forever, eternity past, eternity to come, because he is God in the flesh, Christ with us. Father, tonight I pray that you would help us this season to worship you, to love you, to know who you are and what you've done, to really embrace all that you've given to us in Jesus Christ. I pray that you would help us just be a, oh, a light during this time. Help us to be patient with those who have totally missed this announcement in Jesus Christ. But help us to be so mistakenly clear about who our Christ is. Help us, Lord, not to be too busy for his rule and reign in our life. Help us not to fear giving him things that really matter much to us. Help us not to look into the spiritual mirror of self-pride and be too proud to let Christ change us. Oh, we need your rule and reign more than ever in our life. We pray that you would continue to convince us from the prophets of old, to the very last words of the New Testament that John wrote. And we look forward one day to setting aside our imperfection, the, the weakness of your rule in our life, with absolute rule. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.